FX Medicine is your gateway to resources, research, and information on safe, evidence-based approaches to practicing complementary and integrative medicine. Stay current by visiting fxmedicine.com.au to register for our email newsletter and exclusive members-only content. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Dr. Diana Minnick is a nutritional scientist, international lecturer, and certified functional medicine practitioner. She has a Master of Science degree in human nutrition and dietetics, and has completed her doctorate in the nutritional field. Diana is the author of six books, including The Rainbow Diet and Whole Detox, and has published more than 50 scientific publications and book chapters. Recently, Diana published a comprehensive scientific review on melatonin, where she referred to melatonin deficiency as a darkness deficiency. And it is her expertise in melatonin that we'll be discussing today. Welcome to FX Medicine, Diana. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, so today I wanted to talk about melatonin and provide an overview for our listeners about melatonin um, and its role and benefits and talk about its supplementation. But firstly, can you tell us a little bit about melatonin and, and what it does in the body? You bet. So melatonin, if we just um, break apart the name, mela, which is connected to the pigment in the skin, and it was thought to be something that lightened the skin. And then tonin, uh, it resembled the structure of serotonin. So it was named as melatonin in 1958 by the dermatologist that basically was working on it for skin. But basically mm-hmm. melatonin is an endolamine uh, it looks like a, a neurotransmitter with an, um, an amine group a- attached to it. And what's really unique about melatonin is that it's everywhere, absolutely everywhere in nature. It's in animals. It's in our, in our, in our bodies. And actually, we make it um, through the pineal gland. So you were asking, you know, where is it made? There, there are different types of melatonin in the body. And I think that this is where a bit of the nuance comes into it. So we have what is referred to as the pineal melatonin, and the pineal gland, which is in the brain, is more part of the endocrine system. So when the pineal gland produces melatonin in response to darkness, that then is sent systemically to connect to different cells and to basically key into the clock system. So that's one form of melatonin. And I think that that's the type of melatonin that most people are keyed into. The other type of melatonin is the more autocrine and paracrine types of melatonin. So that's the melatonin everywhere else in the body that's just produced within the cell. So as an example, uh, the mitochondria are huge producers of melatonin. So every cell type that has a mitochondria or the mitochondrion itself or uh, more than one, the mitochondria would be producing melatonin. So we're talking uh, pretty much 
all body tissues. And, and the reason why it's also all body tissues is because melatonin is amphiphilic. So it likes fat, it likes water, it can live in the brain. So it can live in fatty areas of the body. And it can also live in water uh, compartments of the body, like the blood. So you're going to find it in the eye, the skin, the liver, the kidney, the thyroid, the thymus. I mean, skeletal muscle, reproductive system. There's probably um, very few wow. cell types where you would not be finding melatonin. And I know that there's about, I read there's about 400 times more melatonin in the gut mucosa than the pineal gland. So what's the role of melatonin in the gut? I don't think we fully understand it, but here's what I see in the science. You're right. Um, there is about 400 times higher concentration than the pineal gland, and it's not released in accordance with darkness. So that's also mm-hmm. the trigger to produce melatonin is different in the gut. It mm-hmm. seems to be produced in response to a meal. So there's a postprandial effect. Now we know that most neurotransmitters are produced in higher amounts in the gut anyway. So melatonin is actually no real exception. We see that with serotonin. We see it with a number of with other neuroactive compounds. But what we think is happening there is that it may play a role in, you know, I think it's very interesting as it relates to gastrointestinal motility. Um, Mm -hmm. There are some studies looking at the gut microbiome and whether or not it's modulating the gut microbiome. Is it modulating secretions in the gastrointestinal tract? And of course, we know that aside from the GI tract, there's a role for melatonin in the immune system and 70% of the immune system is actually housed in the gut. So there might yeah. actually be a role right there locally as it relates to the immune system. And is it the microbiota that's making the melatonin? Is that where it's coming from? Um, it is, from my understanding, it's more of the enterochromaffin cells that are re- ah. releasing uh, serotonin and melatonin. So it's more the neuroendocrine cell types within the gut. So that's why you find it, um, you, you find it pretty much throughout the extent of the gastrointestinal tract. So I, I would say it's not limited to the gut microbiome because you do find it in the esophagus all the way down to the rectum. So I think mm-hmm. it's probably connected to the neuroendocrine fraction and perhaps as it connects to the smooth muscle. And so you also mentioned it's produced by the mitochondria. So is that then having a role with kind of ATP production and energy production? Yes. Um, What we think is happening with the mitochondria is that it's modulating the mitochondria um, so what, what does the mitochondria get used for? Well, it's it's the main hub of metabolism. So oxidative phosphorylation, there's a lot in the way of reactive oxygen species that get produced by way of that metabolic process. And so melatonin, the, you know, it's, it's hard to say like what it's actually doing there, but this is my my theory. I think that from an evolutionary perspective, through prokaryotes into membrane-bound eukaryotes, what we see is that in melatonin is ancient. You know, it's been around for a really long time. And I think that it was part of the cellular organelle as part of an antioxidant defense system process. And it became a part of that. And that's where we most probably need melatonin is within the mitochondria because of the oxidative bursts all of the reactive oxygen species. So I think that just through the fine-tuning of our physiology over time, it just came to be that way, that it was a protective molecule. I, I think uh-huh. that there's more to unpack there. I, I don't um, 
think that that is like solid science. I think so many people focus on melatonin and sleep. So there hasn't yeah. been a preponderance of research in all of these other areas, even though we know melatonin is active throughout the body and has a variety of different functions. Yeah, that's the thing that really surprised me was, um, you know, reading the arc, well, it's found in the gut and, uh, you know, certainly when you people think about melatonin, it's it's associated with sleep, but certainly it sounds like there's a lot more for us to learn about melatonin and its potential role in the body. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, one of the emerging areas is that of its role in the glymphatic fluid exchange. This is really piquing my interest. You know, I kind of think of melatonin in, in six ways. Number one, it's an antioxidant that can flex to like water or like fat. Number two, it's anti-inflammatory. So that's why it had a lot of... Um, I would say attention during the pandemic because it was seen as an agent to quell the cytokine storm. So that's number two. Number three, which which I'll go through, is more what I find exciting, which is more of the nerve growth factor effect and its role to mediate the the exit of toxic metabolites from the brain into the glymphatic fluid, which is active at night. So that's kind of like a brain detoxification. Some cell biologists are really nerding out into its role in what's called phase separation. And this is not known widely in clinical medicine, but basically in a cell um, viruses, amyloid, just even healthy things can can start to build up in a cell on their own without a membrane. So they kind of set up a factory and it looks like melatonin may stop the setup of those factories by viruses or amyloid. So that's why it's being seen as inactive in things like dementia. And then, uh, of course, the circadian rhythm, sleep-wake cycle, you know, that's branded into all of our minds. Um, and, then, and then finally, the mitochondrial regulation. So if you think like a scientist, you'll say, oh, those are all interesting mechanisms. So if it works as an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory mitochondrial regulator, it must play a role in chronic diseases of various types. <laughs> you know, it's like, if, wow. if you think like that, you can start to see that melatonin goes beyond the reaches of sleep. Yeah, I've even seen some, uh, you know, work or some literature recently talking about this kind of role as anti-aging agents too. Is, is, do you think that it plays a role there too? Yeah, because of all those things that I mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. If we look at aging as like inflammaging, you know, that there's a connection to inflammation, there's a connectedness to one's toxic load, there's a connectedness to hormone levels, also um, antioxidant defense enzymes. You know, people with high glutathione are going to fare better than somebody with low glutathione. There's even a relationship between melatonin and glutathione, like melatonin is actually five times more potent than glutathione. And it can also help regulate glutathione um, and seems to sync up with that. So if we just think of like, what is aging? You know, it's like a lot of free radicals. It's um, an overabundance of oxidative stress. It's inflammation. It's when we don't clean up cells very well and, you know, improper uh, autophagy. So... Yeah, melatonin can work on a lot of these different um, pathways, which is why I think a lot of biohackers, at least in the states that I'm aware of, are really into melatonin, not for the sleep, but for the anti-aging or healthy aging, as I like to say, properties. Mm -hmm. So you've got then, um, obviously, melatonin having anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects. So 
Uh, would also somebody who's if you, the, does the reverse also apply? Like if if somebody is experiencing increased inflammation or increased oxidative stress, would that lower their melatonin concentrations? It should theoretically, it should. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to say what's the chicken, what's the egg, because yeah. in so many conditions where you see low melatonin. Already, you know that there is inflammation, um, issues with oxidative stress. So in theory, yes, that would seem to be Mm -hmm. the case. You know, some of the um, conditions that we know clinically, and I know that your podcast audience is more clinical, right? So we think of uh, mood disorders, dementia, pain disorders, certain types of cancer, even type 2 diabetes might have uh, a connection into melatonin. We see that melatonin plays a role in blood sugar. Uh, things like migraine, of course, sleep wow. disturbance, and you know many of the neurodegenerative conditions like Parkinson's and um, any kind of mitochondrial dysregulating conditions. So, in theory, you know, I, I, there's never just going to be one thing, right? You know, when we think in functional medicine about root causes, many times there's multiple things going on. And what sets it off as a trigger can sometimes be a number of different things like toxic load, poor diet, uh, sedentary lifestyle. So it's, I think it's all kind of jumbled up in there. And melatonin is, you know, I don't see it as like the panacea or it's not like you're just going to take a supplement and smooth over and reverse aging and you know, be free of chronic diseases. But I think it's part of the larger picture of overall hormone balance and endocrine health. Yeah, I wish it was just as simple as just, you know, taking a supplement and uh, all our problems would disappear. But unfortunately, that is uh, certainly not the case. It's definitely not the case. It's um, a bigger bigger context, you know, so many different things to look at physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Absolutely. So, Laura, you've mentioned... Um, some of you know obviously inflammation and, and antioxidants. So just for our listeners, tell us a bit about um, just if you can just review for us what actually affects melatonin. How do we increase naturally increase our melatonin? Yeah, well, let's first start. Um, I, I kind of think of it as a pyramid or a triangle. Like, what's at the base? Where can you get the biggest impact from? You know, just diet and lifestyle. And I would say the bottom, the base. The foundation is adequate darkness at night. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to get our our light right. We have to get our darkness right. So the problem in our everyday lives is that we live by electricity, which is really great for productivity, but it's really bad for melatonin production. And if we look at things like... um, artificial light pollution, you know, this is one of those, I call it an endocrine disruptor that is societally and globally accepted. I'm assuming in Australia, it's as bright in Sydney, Melbourne, and um, Perth. And, you know, you have that same density of light that is distorting our ability to just to naturally make melatonin, right? Because it is truly the darkness hormone if we're talking about pineal generated melatonin. So, you know, I think of children, they're on their phones at night, they're scrolling, they are, maybe um, people are on Kindle reading their books late at night, um, they're at gyms with artificial lighting or fluorescent lighting, they're at shopping malls, or they're in brightly lit places when really, if you look again at, 
<laughs> you know, how nature runs us. It's by the sun, it's by the moon, it's by darkness. And we defy that. We we are in, in environments during the day that are like probably a thousand or more times uh, less bright than outside. And then at night, we reverse that and we make our nighttime environments much more bright than it is outside. So the name of the game is to go along with nature's rhythm of light and dark. And that means bright light during the early morning hours. And even that can help to prime nightly melatonin. So bright light first thing in the morning, you know, being out in, even if it's a cloudy day, you're still getting full spectrum light. And then when it starts to get dim, and I know you're in winter and I'm in summer, so we're at opposite ends here. Um, <laughs> but essentially, as it's getting dim, you need to somehow modify your inner environment. And there are different apps for this. I use an app to measure my indoor light because there are certain measures of light which would be almost like a safeguard. Like you need to know like how your light measures up in your environment. So I use an app and it's just free. You can download it and it'll give you the, the number of lux. Lux is a measure of light. So one lux is equal to a candle flame a meter away. So mm -hmm. essentially there are different light exposure recommendations, but essentially if you want to run with the sun and then go into the dark, you need to, for three hours before bedtime, have up to 10 lux maximum. Now, that may sound like it's not a lot. I think it's actually quite bright. But in the the, be the bedroom or wherever one is sleeping, it should be no more than one lux. It should actually be zero lux. And that is possible to get. So if you can, you know, and that's again, like if you don't measure the light in your environment, then you simply don't know what's too bright. Some people are just used to overly bright blue enriched light and they don't even know it. The other thing that can help is to wear blue light blocking glasses at night. There is some science to suggest that that can be very helpful. And believe it or not, um, eye color can change your sensitivity to that artificial blue light. So I have light eyes. I have green eyes. Um, people with green, blue, and light brown eyes will be more sensitive to the effects of that artificial blue light at night. So they're going to be more impacted and their melatonin suppression will be greater upon exposure to that artificial blue light versus somebody with dark brown eyes. Now, that doesn't mean that <laughs> they shouldn't be attentive to it as well, but <laughs> It's a really big deal that we have to get get our light right and get our darkness right too. I think most people have what we called in the article darkness deficiency. You know, when we think about vitamin D and so much has been said about vitamin D over the pandemic, like, oh my goodness, we have a sunlight deficiency. Everybody get out in the sun. This is antiviral. This is good for our immune system. So then people started to get that as a wake-up call. And they started to realize, yeah, sunlight, we have a sunlight deficiency. We have a vitamin D deficiency. Well, I can say the same thing on the other side about darkness deficiency and melatonin. And melatonin and vitamin D truly, in my view, are like brother and sister. They're like yin and yang. They work together. They're interrelated. Vitamin D is also considered a hormone. So, um, yeah, that's the first, when wow. you ask, well, what can we do to help with melatonin? That's the first thing. 
So what's the app that you're referring to? Well, the one I have on my phone is called Light Meter. Yep. It's just all yep, one word, basically, Light Meter, and the M is capitalized. And um, it's very easy to use. <laughs> it's like anybody can, you, you basically will have, you have to point the camera of your phone as if your eyes were viewing in that direction. And mm-hmm. it's amazing because I work in front of a window and my lux in front of the window can be up to 5,000. But if I was not working in front of a window and I was working in front of a wall, my lux would be 200, which wow. is not so good if I'm working during the day on a computer and I have such low light exposure. You know, another thing, we just are coming off of a full moon and there was a very interesting study. Um, and it was interesting because they did it in a, in a sleep lab with no windows. And the subjects that were in the study did not know that um, the moon was being factored into the researchers' uh, study here. But what they found was that melatonin production was lowest, plus or minus four days within a full moon. So there's something to you know, perhaps a seasonal rhythm, you know, you're in winter, I'm in summer, Mm -hmm. there could be a a lunar rhythm, you know, again, we are, there's so many rhythms within nature, and nature is being responsive to that, and essentially altering our our physiology, whether we like it or not. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the light. I mean, last, uh, not last night, the previous night, uh, we had uh, a significant storm here. And so the electricity went out at about 8.30 8.30 p.m. Um, and so we had no electricity, pure darkness, no street lights, none of that. And, and that went out, I think it came on again about 1 a.m. But I must admit that, you know, yesterday I just felt really good. You know, I slept, I, you know, I had nothing else to do. So I went to bed and, and right. slept and, and, it, and I, I just felt much more refreshed. Now that's a, an experiment of N equals one. But um, it's really interesting that uh, you know, there was no light um, and, you know, and that's something that we really need to consider. And just how dark it really is when you, when you have no yeah. electricity. So it's amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, here, here's an idea for people too because, you know, some people are morning, I would, I would call them morning larks or evening owls. You know, there's a chronotype and everybody's a little different. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm a morning person. It's like, I, I rise with the sun and I get tired, like 6 PM I'm going down. Like it just (laughs) continues. Other people are going up at 6 PM. Like my husband is like, he likes to play music at night. So it's very difficult for somebody like that. So for an evening chronotype, what would be an option is just to dim the lights and also to use more red hues. So, you know, as an example, we have a um, one of those pink salt lamps, which is kind of nice. So things like candlelight, fireplaces, things that are red and not blue. It's like that white, blue and rich light on the computer that is what deters the um, production of melatonin by the pineal gland. So red light is okay. And again, if you can't get to that red light, wearing those blue light blocking glasses, which are actually red, it's kind of interesting because, you know, I sometimes I'll take an evening flight and I don't know why airlines do this, but they have like this blue light on the plane when you're flying those evening because they think it probably relaxes you. Well, yep. you know, I just wear the the red light glass. I mean, well, they're blue light blocking glasses, but mm-hmm. they're red um, on the lenses. Right. So yeah. those would be helpful to have. 
Now, seeing those glasses, I mean, they can vary quite a lot in price. Does it, you know, does it matter, you know, in terms of price-wise, you know, can you get cheap $20, you know, $15, $20 yes. glasses and they're I okay? I think you can. I think you can. Um, They have all different kinds too. Like um, one of the ones that I wear during the day just to prevent too much blue light um, on my retinas because, you know, the eyes are part of the brain, right? And the eyes are what are signaling to the brain in order to produce melatonin. So so I will wear a pair that has kind of like this um, iridescent look to it. So it's not red. It's just like it stops some of that blue light. And then there are other kinds of glasses where they have like gradations of color, like orange as it gets dim and then red for when it is later at night, like 9 p.m. ish when it's really dark. So I, I, you know, some people say that you should wear them like goggles so that you get no light even on the sides. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people are sticklers and in, they'll wear the kind with um, like shields, like they do look like goggles, right? It's blocking yeah. the light all around the eyes. I don't have those. Um, I, I think I, I think that uh, there's a huge range of prices there and I, they probably, they, they don't need to be so expensive. I think that for the average person, you can buy um, a pair of $20 type glasses and be doing yourself good. Terrific. Unless okay, so you, you got get light. them uh, as prescription, unless you get them as prescription, oh, okay. there are some. Yeah, there there are some where you can actually get prescription blue light blocking glasses. So of course that would not be a twenty dollar purchase. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So apart from light, what else? What else affects melatonin? The the second thing I think about is just um, taking care of the diet. I mean, you would expect me to say this because I am a nutrition scientist, and you know, looking at are we eating and antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, nutrient-dense, colorful rainbow wave eating. You know, if I think of like, how is melatonin made in the body? Well, we need protein. You know, if if we just back up biochemically, melatonin is made from serotonin. Serotonin is made from tryptophan. Tryptophan is an essential amino acid and it's a unique one. It's got a certain structure to it, which makes it interesting from a variety of different cell biology perspectives. But basically in the body, the way that the pineal gland is making that melatonin is by having tryptophan. So if you don't have enough protein in the diet, that's problematic on multiple fronts um, from a detoxification front, skeletal muscle, you know, so many things require protein. So that is important for melatonin. And I think just keeping a healthy metabolism. And and also there are these, um, so I talked about light. There are other zeitgebers. Zeitgebers are time givers and they help to punctuate our day and give us a sense of rhythm. So when we eat breakfast in the morning, that's like punctuating our day, like our, our endocrine system is being informed that, okay, this is breakfast. And so, so eating is a zeitgeber. And if we're eating late into the night, it kind of disrupts our rhythm, right? So, I mean, we hear so much, it's very intuitive not to be eating something on the order of two to three hours before bedtime. Some people do what's Mm -hmm. called time-restricted feeding, where they just have like an eight-hour window of the day, like from nine to five that they eat, and then they don't eat after that. Uh, Some people shift that a little bit forward and do like a 12 to six or 12 to eight 
uh, depending on their bedtime. But you have to note not just what you're eating, but when you're eating, because that does inform circadian rhythm and that does inform hormones in the entire endocrine circuit, you know, namely insulin and glucagon, but they're tethered into the web of hormones, right? So that would be relevant to be considering. Mm -hmm. So, so number one, get your light right. Number two, um, make sure that you are eating adequate quality protein, um, adequate plants, you know, getting the, the rainbow of different types of foods so that you have copious amounts of antioxidants of all types that would go to different body systems and be protective. And then I think, uh, oh, one more thing I want to say about that with the plants, um, Lutein and zeaxanthin, which are two xanthophyll carotenoids found in plant foods, typically the yellow-green kind, that mm-hmm. actually embeds into the macula of the eye and can help to protect against that artificial blue light exposure. So that's really good because I think that more and more eye diseases are cropping up. I don't know if you've noticed this in, I don't know if you see clients or, but if you just talk with people it's just people are complaining about their eyes. They've just been on technology way too much. And, um, you know, how can we protect the eye? Well, the eye is so aqueous, but yet it also has some fats. So these xanthophils are perfectly primed to help get into the macula and work as molecular blinds to protect the eye from overexposure to light. So I do think, you know, having plants in the diet can help us to ensure that we're getting some of those things. And then I think the the tippy top of the the triangle, if you will, like, okay, if you've done everything else, you know, then to bring in a, a plant melatonin, you know, and I, I specifically mm-hmm. say a plant melatonin versus a synthetic one, you know, back in the day, melatonin supplements were derived from animal pineal glands. And as you can imagine, that was a very inefficient process because, Think of how small the pineal gland is. Think of how small the production of melatonin is. And then trying to isolate that and put that into supplements for people at different doses. Number one, it's uh, unsustainable. It's unwieldy. It's inhumane. And um, it also would generate lots of issues with prions and viral concerns. So people stopped doing that and quickly pivoted over to something less expensive like creating synthetic melatonin which is uh, much less expensive, but has other issues. And this is in the scientific literature. This is not even just me saying it. There are even articles talking about the the factories, uh, the um, manufacturing of these types of synthetic melatonins, where you get potentially up to 13 different contaminants, you know, thalidomides and different kinds of um, compounds that can be formed. You can also get the the pollution from these factories. You know, there are a lot of patents. Everybody wants to like really get melatonin. And I've even, since the publication of this article, I actually had a few groups reach out to me. Um, One of them was a group of researchers working on uh, a different source of melatonin from microbes, which was interesting. So they wanted to pick my brain a bit about you know, I think people are trying to find other sustainable sources. Well, my vote is always going to be with plants. Um, You know, plants, I feel, have an intelligence. And especially if the plant is connected into the matrix of the plant, right? Like where you have Mm -hmm. other things in there from the plant, not just the melatonin. But melatonin in a plant 
is the same melatonin that's in our bodies. So they can be used um, across the board. So I think there you go. That would be like the the top of, um, you know, if, if somebody has controlled for everything. And let's just imagine too, because uh, Dr. Dickon Weatherby had interviewed me for his podcast. And by way of talking about all of this, he basically coined the term melatonin pause, which I thought was kind of <laughs> cool because, you know, we were talking about perimenopause, postmenopause, andropause, adrenopause. It's kind of like we just go downhill as we get older, like from the 40s on out. I mean, our hormones are tanking. So like by the time we're in our 50s, the same thing happens with melatonin. Endogenous production by the time we're in our mid 50s is a fraction of what it was compared to when we were children. Kids have the highest levels of melatonin that are produced endogenously by the pineal gland. I mean, before puberty, before they um, go into being a teenager, their levels are high. And then from puberty on, they start to incrementally go down. But by the time we're in our 50s, we are bottoming out. So some people have questioned and postulated, you know, all these hormones coming down, is this all connected into increased risk for chronic diseases? You know, whether it's dementia, neurodegenerative conditions, and just like people are doing repletion with things like bioidentical hormones or phytoestrogens or testosterone replacement therapy, you know, people are thinking like that, you know, and, and yep. so thinking along the same line of, hey, do I need to fill the gap, the potholes where my body is lacking melatonin so that I can have this antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, mitochondrial regulation effect? So there are some... Um, you know, I'm just a little person in this whole melatonin space. There are giants who have made this their lifelong work. And I would recommend to everybody listening to follow the work of Dr. Russell Ryder, who is a researcher. I think he's in his 80s now, but he's dedicated m much of his life to researching melatonin. In fact, um, he even has a book called Melatonin. <laughs> and he, uh, it was put out there some years ago. Uh, but it was so prescient. It was uh, incredible, all of the things that he was talking about as it related to melatonin. So it's kind of like the people who love estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone and swear by it and do hormone replacement therapy. There's kind of like this undercurrent of a lot of people in longevity, anti-aging medicine who would be strong proponents of doing the same thing with supplemental melatonin mm -hmm. and saying, yeah, we need to fill the gap because otherwise we're more prone to certain conditions. I mean, saying that though, I mean, obviously the levels are higher in children. Um, why do you think that's the case? What role is it serving with younger children as opposed to adults? I mean, obviously there's that natural progression. Um, why do you think that's the case? I think it's probably immune system and it's, uh -huh. it's, it's part of that whole entrainment of the circadian rhythm and the sleep-wake cycle. So for the first three months that a child is born, um, they have negligible melatonin. So they're not born per se with a lot of melatonin. It's starting to increase as they make their way up to like one year of age. In fact, I just found an article not too long ago, I think it was in May, just this year, 2023, talking about how the mother, if she takes melatonin, it's shaping the gut microbiome of the fetus or of the child. 
So that work is is emerging. So I don't know. There could be a role for maturation of the gut. We know that the brain is developing within that first year of life. Maybe it's connected to that. Um, but I do think that it is connected into that hormone web. So as a child goes through now puberty and they get older, now melatonin starts to quiet down and estrogen, progesterone, testosterone start to come up. And then they kind of like form this relay race and then they move into adulthood. But I don't know. I I don't, honestly, I don't know why kids have the highest amount. Um, But, you know, what's also interesting, Adrian, is that kids are more prone to the effects of artificial blue light. So they can have Mm -hmm. greater amounts of suppression than something like adults do, even though, you know, just for adults, the amount of suppression can be great. Like just within minutes of artificial blue light exposure at night, there can be between like 50 to 80% suppression of melatonin synthesis, which is huge. Now, of course, that's going to depend on many factors, how long you were exposed to the light, what color are your eyes, those kinds of things. But children are actually, even though they have higher melatonin, they're also more susceptible to, um, yeah, the effects of artificial blue light. So it's interesting. Yeah, because I suppose then, you know, if somebody's then waking up in the middle of the night, turning the light on to go to the toilet, I mean, that yeah. is, is it that rapid in terms of effects on melatonin? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is just within minutes that you can um, impede your melatonin production. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it probably like a couple of minutes. So, you know, it. so I was talking with um, like Dr. Terry Walls, who it, you probably know who she is. She's all into multiple sclerosis. And we were talking and she said, yeah, but Deanna, you know, people with MS, they need to have, they, they don't have stability. So if they have to wake up in the middle of the night to go to their restroom, it's, uh, you know, you need some kind of light. And so mm-hmm. something like a nightlight should yeah. be okay. And the reason I say that is just get the light meter app out and test it. Like I have tested it for myself and I'm surprised what is zero lux. You know, again, zero one lux is a candle flame one meter away. So, uh, you know, a night light that's kind of dim, but on the floor and not at eye level, it may not be as pressing. Again, if you use the light meter app and you just figure out like, what is the lux in my bedroom? What is the lux like if I went to the bathroom at night and was exposed here? Um, you know, obviously you've got to go to the bathroom. You can't prevent <laughs> yeah. yourself from doing that. But if you can just minimize the light a bit more, I think that it, maybe, you know, you put a pair of uh, blue light blocking glasses on as you go to the restroom. Mm-hmm. You know, that's also an option to just shield the eyes, but you can still see out of them, obviously. Yeah. I mean, you can get those sensor lights too that you just, and then they emit a little bit of light and they don't emit too much yeah. light too. So now right. I, I suppose something that the people need to be wary of is if they're using the light meter on their phone, they, they then have to go, oh, let me just check my emails and, uh, <laughs> and oh, Facebook. And, oh. <laughs> oh no. But what I mean is that they should already check out different scenarios using their light meter app. So I have done this just even in my own um, bedroom. So like I have checked out like, okay, if I put this little nightlight there, if I turn on the light next to my bed, how much lux am I getting? Like you, you don't do it like in the moment you just, so you don't even have to pick up your phone. Like, I don't know if you follow Brian Johnson, but Brian Johnson is a, um, 
you know, he's the most measured man. Um, and he's doing all this to like help his longevity and in his sleeping. And he talks a lot about his process on Instagram, like in his bedroom, there is no light. It's total darkness, no windows, no, nothing. <laughs> just like a bed, uh-huh. like nothing. And, <laughs> and truly for like healthy sleep hygiene, that is really healthy. Cause you know, somebody, I get interviewed on sleep podcasts and they're like, Deanna, what's in your bedroom? You know, what do you, what's your sleep routine? It's like, I don't read like in my bed at night. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I try to keep everything really bare bones, making sure that the shades, the blinds are drawn. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I've just gotten smarter, you know, just getting into melatonin and understanding how to hack the light and dark in my environment. So I think if people just figure out and use that light meter app or some app that measures lux, they can figure out, okay, like what is my tolerable zero lux to what level can I go in my room and place lights as needed? And, you know, worst case scenario, if your your room is too bright because maybe you live in an urban area and you just get the natural light from outside, you know, wear an eye mask. That would be the next best thing. Because again, it has to come in through the eyes. It'd be interesting for those people who have televisions in their bedroom, which I, you know, I certainly oh, advise no, against. No. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be the worst. I, yeah, exactly. No, I'm not. Uh, I, I think that um, that would be absolutely the worst. Or you know what? I also think of like people who fall asleep in front of the television. You know, here you've got that light, um, and you know we're not even getting into things like the electromagnetic field and the effect mm-hmm. on the pineal gland and changes in calcification over the years. Um, The pineal gland is kind of special relative to some of the other endocrine glands. Um, You know, the thyroid gland is also kind of that sentinel gland. It's very responsive and it's subject to a lot of toxicity and influences in the environment. Pineal gland is so small and embedded in the brain, but yet it is very subject to things like calcification that can impact its function. So, and I don't, I don't think we fully understand why that happens. You know, some people talk about fluoride and just different things, but it's a very interesting gland. And, um, you know, one of my favorite topics as well is consciousness, meaning more of like the spiritual, um, aspects. And the more, in fact, I was telling my husband yesterday, like the more I start reading about melatonin, the more I feel like, oh my goodness, this is a molecule of consciousness. Because if you look at the literature, even on meditators, people who meditate or who are long-term meditators have higher serum serotonin and melatonin compared to people who don't meditate. I just find that that's really intriguing. And I also was reading last night, um, do you know what dimethyltryptamine is, DMT? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, and it's an endogenous, endogenously produced um, psychoactive, right? So there is this association of DMT with the pineal gland that melatonin and DMT are like, kind of chemical cousins, if you will, they're kind of related in structure. So then, you know, so many people talk about DMT and their, um, whether they're near death experiences or, you know, kind of these psychoactive effects. And it's kind of interesting because sometimes I, I listen to people tell me about their experience with melatonin and supplementing and how sometimes they can have very, very vivid dreams. Yeah. And, I've often thought, well, that's so interesting. We know that melatonin is metabolized through cytochrome 1A2. So 
there are different kinetics of how people can experience melatonin and the metabolites of melatonin. But I just think it's so interesting to look at, um, you know, Rene Descartes back in the day um, talked about the pineal gland as the seat of the soul, which is uh, just interesting, just interesting as I start to read the literature process with a scientific mind, but also with an openness to consciousness, um, literature and meditate. So when you ask me, hey, Deanna, how else can people raise their melatonin? You know, I would also say, you know, being in that meditative space can be a, a really good thing, right? At least from that one study, that was that was really interesting to see. And I think just also looking at stress, because 95% of the tryptophan in our body goes through what's called the kynurenin pathway, and only 5% is left over for things like serotonin and melatonin. So the more that we shunt tryptophan over to this kynurenin pathway to not give us as enough enough melatonin that that becomes problematic mm-hmm. so that can be that pathway can be hijacked during stress so there are lots of things here so many things <laughs> we're talking nutrition we're talking lifestyle we're, t- we're talking lifestyle practices um you know i just think that it's uh it's really a rich area to explore for sure. We really just keep repeating the same themes. I mean, when it comes to, um, you know, anything, you know, it's really, you know, eat well and, and take time out and, and care for yourself and, and all those things. And we know that they just just normalises, not obviously we're talking about melatonin today, but, you know, it normalises and optimises a whole range of different hormones. So it's not, uh, you know, it's that, that same theme, exercise well and don't exercise too much and get the timing right and all those different <laughs> things. So. It is. Right. There, yeah. There's no magical hack here. I, I think that the only thing that melatonin brings to light is an appreciation for darkness. I think that that's the newer, I mean, obviously nutrition and physical activity and, you know, all of those things. But I, I think the one thing that melatonin is unique with is that it tells us that we need to really be in sync with darkness and we're not, yep. you know, we think it's, we think it's cool to be awake so late at night mm-hmm working late, playing late. It's just like, you know, I think what these hormones are trying to do for us, Adrian, is to call us back to nature. It's like, you know, this is not, we're out of alignment. We're out of coherence. And it's darkness at the right time, isn't it? It's it's not just, I mean, obviously you've got teenagers who are spending during the day, you know, and they're in a room that's dark, but um, so it's, it's, it's getting that timing right. Now, I just wanted to ask about, uh, I, mean, I mean, you mentioned uh, phytomelatonin, I suppose, your plant-based melatonin. Um, and in Australia, we you can't buy melatonin over the counter. Um, you, it, it is a prescription-based, although you can now go into your pharmacy and the pharmacist can give it to you. But, um, but it's, so it's not as widely available as it is in, in the States, I understand. So what's your suggestion around melatonin? supplementation um you know is you know, the, a lot of the research when it comes to melatonin uh, in terms of supplementation has been done with synthetic what's your cautions against it who should use it who shouldn't use it what's it, you know you got any suggestions around that well there was a study published in molecules in 2021 and uh, it was actually looking at whether phytomelatonin was better than synthetic melatonin and it was a head-to-head study looking at a variety of different cell assays 
You know, they were mm-hmm. looking at things like um, COX-2 or cyclooxygenase 2 as a marker of inflammatory activity. They were looking at reactive oxygen species in a skin cell line. They were looking at DPPH, which is often used for free radical scavenging and, and ORAC. And, and they found far and away that the plant melatonin was outperforming that of synthetic melatonin. And not by a little, but by a lot, like up to, you know, greater than six times the amount of anti-inflammatory activity, more than double that of um, the cellular health activity in the respect of the skin cell line, and uh, almost five times greater in anti-radical scavenging and, you know, um, like 10 times greater ORAC. So there's a big Mm -hmm. difference here between phytomelatonin and, and synthetic melatonin. One thing I want to mention um, is that, you know, this this term gets flipped around a lot, plant-based, you know, plant-based. What is plant-based? Um, even when it comes to like food products, like, so plant-based to me just means like, well, maybe the starter compound or something in there is from a plant, but it's not truly all plant. It could be a starter compound from corn that is then chemically processed, or it could be from soy and then chemically processed. But what I'm talking about is truly a plant melatonin, like not plant-based, but a plant melatonin. So as far as I do think that there is superiority compared to synthetic melatonin, the, the question about dose always comes up. And as far as you know, who should take it, I'm a bit more modest here in terms of the amount. Um, I think people... You know, in the States, we're like the Wild West here, right? Um, so I think we, people are taking like supra-physiological yeah, amounts absolutely. of melatonin that I don't I don't think are necessary for, you know, just replenishment. If, we, if you just look at the amount that the pineal gland makes, right, we're, we're basically looking at in middle age, it's about 0.3 milligrams. If we just want to get into replenishment, I think sticking with that and then building upon that depending on condition. For certain conditions like dementia or immune conditions, you know, there might be reason to go higher. And there are definitely reasons to go higher for acute states like jet lag. You know, with jet lag, that's a whole different sleep protocol, right? That's like, okay, get your circadian rhythm intact before you travel and use melatonin supplementally as a chronobiotic, meaning you're going to try to reset the circadian rhythm. You're not going to use it in a large dose as a hypnotic. You're going to use it as a chronobiotic. And then when you get to your location, especially if you're going east, you're going to take a higher dose in order to get to sleep at night. And that'll have more Mm -hmm. of the soporific, that sleepy kind of hypnotic effect, right? But that comes with that higher dose. So, but the 0.3 milligrams is more like, let's just fill the gap of you know, this person's in middle age, losing levels, just trying to fill the the, the holes, so to speak. So mm-hmm. I think that um, more is not always better. You know, I think some people just get, um, you know, some people tell me on podcasts and such like, oh yeah, I'm taking like, and I'll say like double digits of melatonin. Yeah. And I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of science to like, so, and, and I don't think that more is always better. And especially when it comes to something like an antioxidant. An antioxidant works within the the whole framework of other antioxidants. Like, you know, we see that there's a potentiation with, with things like vitamin C. Vitamin C and melatonin work really well together. They're actually, in, in some studies, I've been looking into 
there's synergy there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, with you, you want that sweet spot. It's like the Goldilocks principle, not too little, not too much, just right. And sometimes that just right will vary a little bit for the individual, depending on, of course, their, you know, their, their need state, their age, um, you know, even gender, um, women seem to have better bioavailability of melatonin than men do from my recollection there. Um, you know, like how light are your eyes, you know? So I think that it's, it's good to start at a physiologic dose. And in fact, if I think back to some of the research of Dr. Richard Wortman, uh, who was at MIT and who did a lot of this early research on melatonin, they tested different doses and that 0.3 milligrams was the sweet spot. So different opinion leader organizations are out there talking about, you know, what would be safe levels for older adults just as like a steady eddy kind of a dose. And mm-hmm. most of them, from what I can see, talk about between 0.1 to 1 milligram. And most of them are talking about like 0.3 to 0.5 milligram. Now, for some people, they, they're like jaws dropped. They're like, that's so low. And it's, <laughs> yeah. but if we just look at physiologically, um, that that should be sufficient unless we have something that warrants an additional dose. Like, you know, like the, all the work on COVID and long haul, um, you know, there have been higher doses used, but for shorter durations. And, uh, you know, even looking at certain chronic conditions or, mm-hmm. you know, not chronic per se, chronic diseases, or, you know, looking at things like diabetes, hypertension, you know, sometimes um, a bit higher doses have been used, like anywhere between one and 10 milligrams. But again, for defined periods, you know, the safety of melatonin supplementation has been um, evaluated for up to like two years, between six months to two years. So again, I think, you know, your audience is a clinician audience. I, I do think it's good to have some clinical oversight of a person's use of melatonin. In the United States, there are melatonin formats that are very desirable for kids to eat. So we have a lot of things like chewables and gummies. Do you have gummies there? Is that a big thing? We do, yeah. Yeah. So people are just like crazy about all these gummies. And I think that, um, you know, when I see all these kids having melatonin gummies, I I don't consider it a... uh, I think there has to be caution. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, as you know, I have been in the supplement industry and I don't favor that kind of gummy format in general for, for anything. I don't like it because I don't like the additional sugar. It's also a hygroscopic matrix. So it's watery. It's more prone to microbial overgrowth and also interactions. You know, how do we know what happens to that melatonin when you put it into that matrix? Have companies tested that? Is there any interaction or breakdown or what is the stability in that versus in something like a, um, you know, like a capsule? Because we do know that melatonin breaks down in um, light and Mm -hmm. oxygen. So that's why having it in a blister pack is preferred versus just like a jar where you open it, cap. And I don't know about in your home, but I know that at least my husband doesn't always tighten that lid and then you just get oxidation. And by the time you're at the bottom, it's like, who knows what you have in that jar. So I think that there are a lot of things to consider here. It's, um, it's very interesting to me how melatonin is regulated. 
regulated differently in different countries because of, you know, just scientifically just knowing that there are many different uses of it. It's just that, you know, perhaps the dose needs to be better. I think better communication and education needs to be out there. And also the population that uses it. Again, I don't think that children need to be taking melatonin supplements unless, you know, that there there is some scant literature on this, looking at the role for its use in um, autism and also ADHD mm-hmm. in children. But, you know, I would be pivoting to other things for those conditions more than something like melatonin. Like that would not be like, in my mind, the first line of a therapeutic approach with a child, that just doesn't seem right. So I think its use has to be, you know, properly gauged for the individual and everything about that individual. Just like anything else, it has to be personalized. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I've read some of the literature with regards to, to things like, you know, it's used in migraine and, uh, and, as a clinical psychologist, I've also been interested in reading some of the literature with bipolar, um, and maybe for mm-hmm. you know yeah. different phases of the of the you know people experiencing the, the manic phase. Maybe there's a role there with higher doses um, for a short period of time. So, but and like you said, yeah. you've really got to kind of consider those those circumstances too. Now, with the um, just a question with the if people were to take the phytomelatonin, when would they take it? What time would they take it? 40 to 60 minutes before bedtime, like any melatonin. Um, so in, you know, if we think of, you know, the half-life of melatonin is, you know, if, if, if it's breaking down, um, you know, over the night, you know, it's, it's best taken at that 0.3 milligram dose, 40 to 60 Mm -hmm. minutes before. Now, let me just give some disclaimers to that because, for some people, they're really slow metabolizers, and then they get groggy in the morning. They get groggy. And I hear this from certain people, and it's like, well, how much mm-hmm. did you take? What form did you take? What else was in there? And um, what what time did you take it? So for the people that it, – it's like you kind of have to find your sweet spot of what works for you. And, and for some people, if they are the person that gets groggy, they need to take it even earlier than that 40 to 60 minutes. Right. So then that's telling me that their breakdown is delayed. You can kind of make some general estimation since this, again, is a practitioner audience. Uh, people will know what I'm talking about here. But you can make some estimation based on if you know anything about a person's gene variability in cytochrome 1A2. So if somebody is a fast metabolizer of caffeine, that means that they're most likely going to be a fast metabolizer of melatonin. Meaning okay. that they could take it at that 40 to 60 minutes before bedtime. But for people who are slow metabolizers of caffeine, <laughs> like there are the people that get the heart palpitations, they get <laughs> like the, the revved up energy and it just lasts a long time. They can't drink coffee past 12 noon. Those are the people that probably need to take it a bit earlier so that the kinetics will will land nicely to have them waking in the morning feeling more alert rather than groggy. Okay. So that's... And you know what? And I'll just mention this too, that just some like personal hacks, Um, nothing science-based here, but, um, you know, I have some colleagues and we all like experimenting with taking the phytomelatonin and doing different things with it. So personally, I have been taking it with a little bit of vitamin C just to see if I experience anything different there. Because again, the literature is 
telling me that vitamin C and melatonin work really well together. You know, if you look at melatonin as an antioxidant, one molecule of melatonin can quench up to 10 free radicals. And what's really interesting, there's one article, I think it was by Dr. Tan, who works with Dr. Ryder. They, they co-publish a lot. And um, basically he was showing how the metabolites of melatonin can even act as antioxidants. It's like Dr. Kerry Jones would say, like the Russian doll approach to <laughs> quenching free radicals. Like <laughs> the mother molecule then brings out this, the next doll and then you know there's more quenching of those radicals and then on and on and on. Vitamin C can quench between one and two free radicals. So that's just to give you a sense. But they, they seem there's some kind of connection there between them. Um, a friend of mine, because again, we know that melatonin is fat soluble and water soluble. He takes it with um, a fish oil. Uh, so just a okay. one soft gel of an omega-3. He takes that together with melatonin and he, he feels like that hits the sweet spot for him. So that might help with bioavailability in certain people. Um, wow. Yeah. And he also takes um, magnesium at night. So, you know, everybody has to find kind of like that concoction that works best. You know, Adrian, just to mention too, I'm just thinking for perimenopausal women who have vasomotor symptoms at night to the point that it wakes them up. So I'm talking about, you know, hot flashes, night sweats, they wake up, they can't get back to sleep. There's something about that two to 4 a.m. window. Um, I'm one of those women. <laughs> And, you know, what I have found in my use of melatonin that I needed to go higher because, you know, it's kind of like all those pauses hitting simultaneously. It's like, whoa, there goes estrogen. Whoa, there goes progesterone and my melatonin is low. So what's neat, what I didn't mention already is that melatonin is also a hypothermic agent, meaning that it cools the core body temperature, which is kind of the, the nice process that initiates sleep, right? So melatonin is important for sleep, reducing sleep latency. It gets us to bed and gets us to sleep faster. And I think in part that's because of its ability to lower the core body temperature. So for those perimenopausal women who are having this change in the range of their um, their, their hypothalamus and their, their changes there from a thermoregulatory point of view, um, it might behoove them. You don't see a lot of discussion about this, but I just personally have been trying that out for myself. And if we know that it's an anti-inflammatory, it helps with sleep wake, it is, um, an antioxidant, it helps with core body temperature. It might help some of the perimenopausal women out there that are suffering from night uh, sweats and hot flashes. So it's just something to consider. So it definitely makes theoretical sense, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm surprised that there are no papers. I can't find anything about it. <laughs> I think I need to actually put together a nice little study of women who all want to try this because yeah, exactly. uh, it's such an opportunity. And perhaps, you know, in those women, so many changes with the brain due to the withdrawal of estrogen. So possibly some changes in glymphatic fluid flux and who knows um there could be many different mechanism type of approaches to take with that well well thank you very much for you know you, you, you're getting me thinking um i'm head spinning at the moment going through all these different um possibilities and and um you know 
really thank you for the for the work that you've done, not only in melatonin, but you know, I've read lots, follow a lot, a lot of your work over the years, and uh, um, you know the information that you talk about. With you know, we could have another podcast about nutrients in general and and, and colours of foods <laughs> and their potential benefits. So, but uh, yeah, I'd, uh, I thank you very much for joining us today and and really opening up people's ideas and thoughts about melatonin and providing some good sound education around melatonin. I really appreciate um, you having a conversation with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I hope that um, it makes sense for everybody and gets those wheels turning. And if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out. So thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti, and thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you never miss an FX Medicine episode by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram.